From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us on this special pre-Thanksgiving edition of Washington Watch. And first, have a special announcement. The Family Research Council is leading the effort for a national prayer event taking place on the evening of Sunday, November 28th, just days before the U.S. Supreme Court, will hear oral arguments in the major abortion case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization on December 1st. Now, the live event, Pray Together for Life, will kick off in person at New Horizon Church in Jackson, Mississippi at 6.30 p.m. Central Time. And the live national broadcast will begin at 7 p.m. Central Time. Details can be found at PrayTogetherForLife.com. You can also text TOGETHER to 67742 for more information. Again, the website is PrayTogetherForLife.com, and you can text TOGETHER to 67742. We look forward to joining you for that special event. Now, as we get ready for Thanksgiving, families will be gathering, food will be eaten, football will be watched. For many, the holidays are the best time of year. For others, they are some of the most difficult times of the year. The goal of our program today is to give you some tools to have not only a fun time with your family, but also a meaningful time with your friends, children, and grandchildren. Later in the program, we'll talk to Dr. John Basie about Generation Z, what makes them unique, and how can we disciple them most effectively. Toward the end of the show, we'll talk to David Clausen about the significance of gratitude, as well as some tips and tricks for having constructive conversations with people in your family who may not see the world exactly the same way you do. But first, we're going to talk about millennials. Does this statement describe a young person in your life? Quote, millennials are struggling to develop positive, lasting relationships, and these relational difficulties are likely tied to increasing levels of emotional and mental health issues they report experiencing on a regular basis. That's what my colleague George Barna of Arizona Christian University's director for research at their Cultural Research Center says about the millennial generation in the new installment of his research study. George is also FRC's senior research fellow for the Center for Biblical Worldview. George, welcome back to the show. Joseph, always good to be with you. So glad to have you. I want to remind people that as we talk about millennials, these are people born between 1984 and 2002. What did you find contributes to the struggles that, that millennials are having developing positive, lasting relationships? You know, Joseph, there were quite a number of things. Among those were the fact that they uh, are not very trusting of other people. We gave them a whole list of people, asked them how trusting they were of them. There was no type of person, no group of people, no particular individuals of a type in their lives where even a majority said that they had a high level of trust in those people. That includes family, intimate relationships, their closest friends. So they're struggling with that trust issue. Uh, part of it has to do with their own self issues, the fact that they doubt themselves, 
the fact that they don't really sense that they're making significant progress in life. They don't have a sense of purpose that they're moving toward or real standards that suggest to them that they personally have value. But that also reflects the fact that they don't see people the same way that God does. They don't attribute inherent value to other human beings. And so we found that they are actually much less tolerant of other people. Uh, they are not very respectful toward other people. They're the generation that's least likely to believe in the concept of the golden rule, to treat others the same way that they want to be treated. So you look at all of that and the fact that many of them have alternative worldviews that would suggest that either life isn't real, life doesn't have value, life isn't worth living. You put all of these things together and before you know it, you've got real obstacles to overcome if you want to develop positive and lasting relationships. There's a lot to dig into there. If they have rejected the golden rule, what have they replaced that with? Well, it, it goes back, I think, to their view of God and their view of self. For millennials, they would say that life is all about themselves. There's nobody else who's going to care for them like they care for themselves. Nobody else, based on their own thinking about how they treat others, who is going to really sacrifice to make sure that they're taken care of. And so a lot of it has to do with, you know, people need to treat me well before I'm willing to treat them well. So the golden rule is kind of the reverse. It's like I have an obligation because God loved me first. I need to love other people first. That's the model that he's given to me. My life isn't about me. It's about how I know, love, and serve God. And part of the way that I do that is by taking care of other people, committing to them, sacrificing for their best needs, and then believing that God will take care of me. But millennials see it in just the opposite way. I've got to take care of myself first. And a lot of this comes back to the fact that a majority of them do not believe in a all-powerful, all-knowing, loving, just, merciful God who created them and is still involved in their life today. Most of them would either say that there is no God at all, or they would say that if God exists, he's not involved in my life, in my day, life on a day-to-day -day basis. I have to take care of myself, and if I do enough good, a uh, good enough job of that, he'll bless that. And of course, that is the exact opposite of the instruction we see in Scripture to love those who persecute you, to, um, to treat other people well, despite the fact that they, they don't treat you well. You also mentioned the trust issues that they seem to have, and it feels like these could be related. Is the fact that they don't trust people due to the fact that people aren't loving them uh, enthusiastically enough, quickly enough? That's part of it. You know, just another interesting part of the study found that this is a generation where a majority of them admit to having what is commonly thought of as mental and emotional health issues. And so, for instance, 54% of them told us that they frequently struggle with issues related to anxiety, depression, and fear. And so when your perspective of the world is that it's out to get you, and by the way, their response to that, they are the generation that by far is most likely to say, 
if somebody does something I don't like or something that that may hurt me or discourage me, I'm going to get them back. Well, when you take that mentality into relationships, it doesn't bode well for creating lasting, vibrant, deep relationships. Other people are going to be wary of you. Uh, you know, when, when they believe that you're not out for their best interest, you're out only for your own best interest. It does make sense that when you are skeptical of everyone, it's hard to form strong emotional bonds with people. And, and you talk about these trust issues that millennials seem to be experiencing. How different is that than the generations before them? Uh, we looked at probably a dozen and a half different attributes related to relationships and mental health. And what we find is that typically not only are millennials higher on each of these items in terms of not being at normative levels, but what we found is that they, in some cases, are two or three times more likely to have a particular negative perspective toward other people. Their levels of disrespect for other people much higher. Their levels of willing to get revenge on other people more than twice as high as you would find with older generations. So these are not minimal differences. What we're finding is this is a radical shift in how they think about themselves and other individuals and how they gets played out in terms of their attempts to develop meaningful relationships. What would you say is the most surprising thing that you discovered about the way they are, the way the trends are going these days? Well, to me, the fact that 54% are willing to admit that they regularly struggle with anxiety and depression and fear, that really jumped out at me as being a big deal. And one of the reasons for that is because that's not a socially desirable answer that you want to give in a research survey. Okay. It, it, it's something that people may admit to, but it's not something that they're going to talk about often. So we appreciate the honesty in the course of the survey. But what that also says to me is that number is probably even much higher than the 54%. It's probably closer to the two-thirds to three-quarters range. I mean, that's typically what you'll find with these kinds of issues that you research, where people are admitting to things that they wouldn't normally bring up in daily conversation. So to me, that's a major issue. You know, the, the National Institute of Mental Health tracks this on a daily basis. And they not only agree with these kinds of things that we're pointing out in the survey through their research, but they're also finding that with the subsequent generation, one that you're going to talk about later in your program, Gen Z, that these issues may be even bigger for that particular generation. So I know some adults would be saying, well, you know, millennials, they're adults, it's too late. Let's focus on kids. Well, if you focus on these kind of issues, you've kind of got a twofer going here. You know, you're going to get two generations for the price of one because both of these generations are struggling with these issues. And I think one of the take-home lessons, perhaps, from this conversation as people all over America prepare to have dinner with their family, many of whom will be millennials, is just the recognition that the odds are that they are experiencing 
experiencing significant mental stress and and uh, a sense of isolation and loneliness, and that affects all sorts of things. And just to have that awareness as we deal with people, and, and kindness, of course, always gets us along much further uh, than, than aggression with people. Um, but George... What are the opportunities? What are the strengths? How can we build bridges uh, with, with people who may not be in our generation but are dealing with these millennial struggles? Yeah, you know, one of the things, Joseph, that the research brings out is that millennials do not want conflict. And so they will avoid developing a relationship with someone if they think that relationship is going to have much conflict engage, involved in it. And so when you engage with these people, the thing isn't to be beating them over the head. If they're not a Christian, and most of them aren't, most of them don't believe in God, most of them don't believe that the Bible contains truth. The important thing is to find places where you can connect with them, different kinds of issues, experiences, common beliefs, and build on those. And as you do that, to recognize that what you want to be doing is asking questions about what they believe and why they believe it, not telling them you're wrong, but simply trying to understand where they're coming from and giving them options to think about without saying, I know the right way, you don't know the right way, but giving them those options to consider. And over the long haul, modeling those behaviors so that they think, yeah, that's something I need to pay attention to. George Barno, greatly appreciate your research as well as your wisdom. We look forward to next time. Thanks, Joseph. And coming up next, we'll talk about Generation Z with Dr. John Basie. He's written a book on discipling them. Stay with us. We'll talk about it next. Today, moral relativism and political correctness are assaulting truth. How can the world have hope when believers themselves aren't clear on the authority of the Bible? The Church of Jesus Christ always faces a tremendous temptation to deviate from the Word of God. The God who speaks clearly expresses God's intent in giving us His Word and the response that is demanded of those who hear. Nobody ever encounters God and says, that was boring and irrelevant. When people say that about the Bible, it just says to me, they've not encountered the God of the Bible. Our faith is rooted in history, and, and consequently we need to use the evidence and never be afraid of it. The God Who Speaks is a feature-length documentary from the American Family Association which could bolster your confidence in the Word of God. Churches really need to see this, really need to understand what the Bible actually is. Available now at thegodwhospeaks.org. Here's a moment of Hope for Your Home with Jerry and Becky Drace. Look what I built. Our children love to build with Legos. So do our grandchildren. Towers, bridges, castles, they just love to build. One thing they've learned is the importance of a firm foundation. Listen to Hebrews 11, verse 10. And he, Abraham, waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You know, Abraham followed God, laying the foundation of his life firmly on his faith. In faith, he left his native land to go to a place he had never been. In faith, he believed he would have a son even though he was an old man. And in faith, he knew that God would follow through on his promises of an eternal life in that heavenly city. I call these blocks of faith. Faith blocks are the foundation on which God will build your life. Each time you act on your faith in God, your life's foundation becomes stronger. Remember, a Lego tower will topple without a firm foundation, but a life built on faith blocks has a foundation that is eternal. Learn more at HopeForTheHome.org. 
that one of the greatest attacks in America was an attack perpetrated by our very own Supreme Court. That was the legalization of abortion. Now, subsequent to that, there have been 70 million babies slaughtered in the wombs of their mothers. That is more than the entire population of Canada and Australia combined. Kevin Sorbo of the hit films God's Not Dead and Let There Be Light supports life. I wanted to invite you to offer your full support for the ministry of Preborn and its leader, Dan Steiner. The team at Preborn is very focused and very successful at saving preborn babies from abortion. Join Kevin Sorbo and Preborn in standing for life. By letting a mother see her baby on ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. For $140, you can help save five babies' lives. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby. Or donate securely at preborn.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Glad that you are with us. Well, millennials were the subject of our conversation with George Barna. But there's another generation increasingly getting the attention of researchers and cultural commentators. Generation Z is the youngest generation of all, and with them come a variety of new challenges. How do we as older Christians disciple this generation into a lifelong walk with Jesus? And how do we do this in a post-Christian nation? Dr. John Basie has a new book out specifically for this purpose. It's called Know, Be, Live, a 360-degree approach to discipleship in a post-Christian era, and he's here to share answers to those questions and more. Dr. Basie, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. Well, we're glad to have you. Now, first, who are we talking about when we're talking about Generation Z? These, uh, Joseph, are the uh, young people born between 1999 and 2015. Okay. Well, I am uh, the parent of four of said people. And tell me, because I'm, this is personally very interesting to me, um, what are the primary influences for this generation now? One of the very first that won't surprise you as a parent is they are digitally saturated Almost none of them can remember a time when they were not influenced in some significant way by a screen almost all the time. And screens follow them everywhere. It's, it's like the oxygen that they breathe. That's, that's one of the big takeaways from this Gen Z research in which our institute partnered with the Barna Group. There are several other key influencers, as you might imagine, differing views on uh, politics, culture, and education. Uh, they tend to be conflict-averse, um, and they have differing views on authority, uh, quite frankly. But digital saturation is the one that uh, we're really paying attention to right now. And what is the impact of digital saturation on them? Yes, uh, they, they manifest a number of challenges not experienced uh, by previous generations. For example, attention spans tend to be uh, much less uh, because they're constantly looking at their phones. Uh, it's harder to sit in a, in a lecture, for example, for more than just a few minutes without the automatic 
uh, impulse to look at somebody that, that just texted me, phantom, phantom vibrations. You've probably heard of these. Uh, the phone's not even in my pocket, but I feel the vibration because I'm so used to it being there. Uh, and so one of the questions we wrestle with, Joseph, is in what sense are these devices actually discipling our children? And uh, that's something that we tackle in the yeah. book. And talk about that because it's it's not counter it, it seems a little counterintuitive. This idea that a dis, that a device would disciple someone. What do you mean when you say that? Yes. Well, if we if we take discipleship to mean that in some form or fashion we are becoming an apprentice to somebody else or something else, we are seeking to be like that person. Uh, in the, in the Christian tradition, of course, we would say we are seeking to be like Jesus. We are apprentices unto Jesus. Well, it doesn't follow from that that uh, others outside of our tradition are, are doing that very same thing. In fact, they're, they're choosing to be discipled by other people, other things. And in, in our case, in, in the case of this conversation, mobile devices, this is the thing that is most shaping uh, this generation because these machines are with our kids 24-7. They even sleep with them in, in, so many, in so many instances. What is the proper response to this by parents, educators, grandparents, schools? How should we be reacting to this digital age that they are growing up in? One of the chapters in our book, uh, Joseph, uh, deals with this. It's called uh, over, Gen Z's Overprotective and Underprotective Parents. Uh, the underprotective portion of this relates to the digital saturation that we're talking about. Parents are not, in general, uh, really watching what their kids are doing online. Some are. We want to be careful to say that, yes, some are doing a fantastic job. But far too many, and this is our experience here at Impact 360 Institute, far too many are just taking for granted that their kids are doing uh, safe, safe searches online and talking with people that are okay. But what about TikTok? What about uh, the various other platforms that, that we don't frankly know who they're talking to? Uh, parents are underprotective, and they, they need to take a bit of a more active role in this. How is this affecting what Gen Z values and the things that they learn to love? Yeah, this is a great question. Our, our friend from the Colson Center, uh, John Stone Street, wrote a, wrote a chapter in the book on this very topic. How do we come to love the right things, as, as the great church father, St. Augustine, uh, put it to us? How do we come to form the loves that we have? And, and in terms of someone with a smartphone, someone born between 1999 and 2015, getting their hands on a smartphone, if they are discipled by that smartphone, they just will learn to love whatever happens to come across their feed. Uh, and so we have to, we have in our churches, in our parenting, uh, we have to lean into this proactively and have discussions with our kids. One of the things that students tell us year after year, Joseph, is that, hey, you know, my church didn't really do a great job of helping me uh, ask and answer 
some of the deepest questions and some of the most scary questions that I have. And I didn't really talk about these things with my parents, everything from sexuality to differing worldviews to moral relativism and all the rest. So parents and churches really need to step into this in a proactive way. And that's what we're going to get into in the in our in the continuation of our conversation on the other side of the break, the the formation of our loves that you just talked about there. I've heard it referred to as as a cucumber being pickled in a brine. What is the brine that you are sitting in? What are the things you're soaking up? Because so much of the way that we are formed is not necessarily about what we're taught academically, but what we feel, what we absorb, what we take in by the environment around us. And media is certainly having a big impact on us. We're gonna continue this conversation with Dr. John Basie when we come back right after the break. He's the author of the new book, Be, Live, uh, B, no, B. I'm sorry, we'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us on Washington Watch. Making the most of your money. Here's Dan Celia on American Family Radio. My concern is by the end of the year, we could end up into some sort of full-blown oil crisis. We are going to have a bit of a pullback. But look, we aren't going to get out of an oil crisis without higher oil prices. We're not going to get production from oil companies that are going to bring down the price of oil unless they have capital. People have to start coming into the markets. They've got to see prices continue to go up. That'll give them some cash and some value in order to want to start producing more oil. But prices have to go up and stay up with some level of stability before we can see permanent prices coming down in oil. And frankly, I don't think the oil companies are very anxious to deal with this administration. Jerome Powell mentions he is going to be talking about and thinking about a strategy for inflation. Jerome, there is no strategy for inflation. You're behind, leading behind again as the Fed always does. You had an opportunity to get ahead of it in February. You chose not to because I hope you didn't truly believe that it was temporary. I don't want to think that of the Federal Reserve, but maybe it's possible. But the fact of the matter is we're leading from behind now. And the only thing you can do is raise rates slightly in December. Do it again slightly in end of January, February. One more time, maybe a quarter of a point by the end of the quarter and start adding some value to the dollar and get things in check. And maybe you can begin to think of a strategy beyond that once that is done. Want to hear more financial advice from Dan Celia? Look for his podcast at AFR.net. Welcome back to Washington Watch. We are continuing our conversation with John Basie, editor of Know, Be, Live, a 360-degree approach to discipleship in a post-Christian era. The book goes deeply into how we, as folks who are older, can spiritually shepherd this current generation of kids, Generation Z. Dr. Basie, to start this part of the conversation, what are the opportunities that you see for parents? One of the great opportunities, Joseph, is for parents to take a proactive stance with respect to what their kids are looking at on their phones, 
And one of the key things, this may seem obvious uh, to some of us, but it, it really isn't. We can't take this for granted. Have open conversation with your child about what, what are you learning online? Who are you talking to? And sometimes really fruitful conversation uh, can, can be had there. We do this with our kids, and, and uh, this is how they often get their news is, is what comes across in their, in their feed. And we have controls set up, and we're aware of, of what they're doing. And, and uh, really fruitful conversation can be had about, about, about these things. But the idea is, is openness and, and dialogue. And uh, are my parents a safe place? Are, are they people that I want to go to? to have these conversations. Well, as the parent of, in my case, I have three teenage daughters presently. Um, it, it does feel like sometimes you're not the first person they want to go to with all of their, all of their needs and, and challenges. What can parents do in their relationships with their kids to be a, in their vernacular, safe space, a place where they feel comfortable sharing what's really going on in their lives? I think this is a real opportunity for the church, and this is yet another chapter in the book that uh, one of our authors picks up on, is, is the church can be a partner with the family. And, and that's, really, that's really God's design, isn't it? I mean, we as, we as families, and this is, this is uh, one of the goals of, of your organization, Family Research Council, what does God's design for family look like, and what is the family's uh, design within the life of the church? This is where parents and ministers and other disciplers uh, really need to be partnering together and creating a dialogue around what are the key topics that we need to be engaging our young people in. Uh, in, in chapter four of the book, one of our authors points this out, that Gen Z isn't necessarily socially conservative uh, by conviction. They simply are growing up slower and they tend to embrace adult decisions uh, much less quickly. And so it's interesting, the, the number of teen pregnancies, according to some studies, uh, is down, but it's not because they actually think sleeping with their girlfriend is, is wrong. It's just that they're online more often than in the past, and they're having community by way of phone rather than in person. And so uh, while their convictions aren't necessarily any better, in some ways they're worse, uh, they're less mature, and, and we just need to be partnering with the church. Parents and, and uh, church leaders need to be partnering together for the sake of these, these kids, our, our Gen Z children. Now, Dr. Basie, you work with a lot of young people. What are the most common mistakes you see from parents yeah, one of those I would say is this: uh, we've been talking about the the underprotective aspect, particularly as it relates to uh, their digital lives, what they're doing on their screens, who they're talking to. But there is an overprotective element as well, and and that is as it comes to uh, physical safety. Uh, some parents are really really a bit overprotective as it comes to okay should they should they go and get a job and and uh these kinds of things that in in a bygone era we just would have said this is a, this is hard work is really good for our kids and uh they need to be developing resilience this is something joseph that that studies are also showing is because in some ways parents 
uh, are not are not tough enough on their kids. They they don't have enough resilience. And uh, how do how do we help our kids push through hard things? And uh, how do we push them to other people who are willing to have uh, conflict with them and teach them how to do conflict conflict well in the home uh, before they head off to college, and then eventually in the workplace. A lot of parents feel the stress of this. We got about a minute left. Why should parents be optimistic? Why should parents not quit? Where are the opportunities? Uh, what's the reason to believe that this is going to work out okay for us and our kids? This is a really, this is a really energetic uh, generation, I believe, uh, Joseph. And as you would know from history, many of the, the positive movements in Christianity in this country were started by college students. And I think the same opportunity is available here. Uh, there's reason for hope. Um, they have abilities. Uh, they, they are learners in ways that weren't necessarily true in bygone eras. And uh, we, just, we just really believe in this generation. For all the challenges, it is worth it. And uh, may we have a heart of wisdom, uh, as, as the scriptures tell us in Psalm 9012. And God has created them for specifically this moment. And he has created us for specifically this moment as well. He didn't make any mistakes. We just need to lean into what God is doing in us and allow ourselves to be changed as well as we try to help change and disciple our young people. Dr. John Basie, thank you so much for being with us. Go pick up No Be Live. Now, coming up, don't go anywhere. FRC's director for the Center for Biblical Worldview joins me next with an age-old question. How do we survive Thanksgiving people with Thanksgiving dinner with people who voted for the other guy? We'll have that conversation when we come back. Stay with us. At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. What does the American Family Association stand for? AFA aims to evangelize the lost and disciple the believer. AFA aims to strengthen biblical marriages and equip parents to raise godly children. These values and more are part of our mission to inform, equip, and activate individuals to strengthen the moral foundations of our culture. We also support the church. We want to be a leading organization in biblical worldview training for cultural transformation. Thank you for standing with us. When we're told to do something, we like to ask why. We don't follow traditions merely for the sake of tradition. We seek a biblical worldview and search for reasons behind answers. 
For the Christian who wants to dig deeper, there's EngageMagazine.net. Packed with relevant articles from movie reviews and life tips to culture and the believer's spiritual life. Share truth. Apply scripture. EngageMagazine.net. When we think in terms of authorship of the Bible, we have essentially a dual authorship. Pastor Alistair Begg from the American Family Studios documentary, The God Who Speaks. So it's true to say that Paul wrote Romans. It's equally true to say that God wrote Romans. And the great wonder of it is that without any violation of Paul's personality or his intellect, um, God, through the instrumentation of the Holy Spirit, both uh, provided Paul and enabled Paul to write as he wrote. And that would be true for all the Bible authors. And so it is at once uh, an entirely divine book, and yet it is an entirely divine book that uses uh, human authors in order to provide us with the text. Visit thegodwhospeaks.org. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Glad that you are with us. With Thanksgiving being tomorrow, are you dreading the long meal with your family members who either don't share your faith, your politics, or either? Do you anticipate contentious discussions about religion and politics with your family? What's the biblical way to handle these situations? That's what we're going to talk about with FRC's director of the Center for Biblical Worldview, David Claussen, who's here to share. David, welcome back to the program. Hey, great to be with you, Joseph. Happy Thanksgiving. Well, happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. Uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts of how to not blow up Thanksgiving dinner, let's talk a little bit about why we are having Thanksgiving and what gratitude and thankfulness is about. What's the worldview component of gratitude? Yeah, that's a great question, a great way to start off the conversation, Joseph. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, as Christians, I think we are we should be some of the most grateful and thankful people uh, that you're going to meet anywhere. Um, obviously, the Bible talks about this. The Bible actually assumes that we're going to be thankful. Uh, Paul in Colossians 4.2 says that we should always be watchful and thankful. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians, he writes that we should rejoice always and pray continually, uh, giving thanks in all circumstances. Uh, and this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Uh, Hebrews says that we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, so we should be thankful. As I think, Joseph, if we think about it as believers uh, going into Thanksgiving, we have so much to be thankful for, uh, whether it's just the gospel, the good news that we can be reconciled to a holy God. Uh, we have the local church, uh, which God has given us to have fellowship with other believers. Uh, we have his word, uh, how gracious that those of us uh, who can read and speak English have dozens of translations uh, that we can read God's word in our own language. Uh, we can be thankful that we don't have to earn our salvation, that it's God's gracious gift to us. Um, we don't have to worry about a lot, so many of our needs. Uh, Matthew 6, he provides uh, clothing and food and drink. He tells us not to be anxious. Um, and so I think, and I could go on, just the, the future hope uh, that we have as believers that one day we will spend eternity with God. So I think if we just stop for just a moment and think about all the gracious gifts God has given us, uh, those of us who follow Jesus should be the most thankful people that you will find anywhere. I think I think you're right, of course, 
But I also think that gratitude is, is kind of falling out of favor a bit because the emphasis in, in recent years in, in the Western world and certainly in the American context is an is a emphasis on the things that aren't right. Does, it, does sh- showing gratitude for the things that could be worse, does that minimize the fact that things still could be better? No, I don't think so. And sure, uh, we, all of us, have different, uh, difficult circumstances and situations that we have to go through. But I think part of that biblical worldview is that we know, uh, Romans 8, 28, a verse I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with, uh, that we, uh, in all things, God works for good to those who love him. So even when we're going through difficult things, even things that are challenging, my goodness, the last two years, Joseph, have been very difficult for many people. And yet, underneath uh, the challenges that we go through, whether it's a diagnosis, it's a tough situation at home, uh, we can be thankful because we trust that God is working those things out uh, for our good and for his glory. So that's as, as Christians, we have a perspective that maybe some of our friends and neighbors uh, would not have. I think that is what distinguishes the Christian worldview in one of the things that distinguishes the Christian worldview from the secular or naturalist worldview is this understanding that as bad as things are, and and there's certainly a lot of pain in the world, this is as bad as it ever gets. And And the challenge for the naturalist, for the secularist, for the atheist, is that this is as good as it ever gets as well. And if you are starting from the from a place where this is as good as it ever gets, that might be depressing. But Christians can take hope in the fact that this is as bad as it ever gets. And we know that all the pain, all the injustice, all the wrong that has been done to us, that has been done by us, will ultimately be taken care of. That's very comforting. But I can understand that if I didn't have that belief, if if I did not have that assurance that looking around in the world and saying, hey, this is as good as it ever gets, and unless I do something to fix it all, it's always going to stay this way, that would be depressing, wouldn't it? Oh, it absolutely would, Joseph. If we, you know, and every worldview has to answer that question. You know, there's four questions that I say every worldview has to answer, and one of those questions is, uh, what's gone wrong with the world? Uh, again, it doesn't take uh, any sort of advanced degree to look around and see that things are not as they ought to be out there and in here, uh, in ourselves. And if you thought it was completely up to you uh, to right every wrong, every injustice, um, that would be absolutely exhausting. And so that's why, again, as Christians, with the hope of the gospel, we have a much better word uh, to offer uh, people that are confused, anxious, depressed, and especially the younger generation uh, that George earlier in the show talked about. That's a generation that's defined uh, by loneliness and uh, anxiousness. And so, again, the Christian gospel is a much hopeful, better word than the rest of the world offers. And I think we may have landed on something perhaps accidentally that George also talked about the, the, the loneliness, the sense of the lack of purpose, the isolation. And it's, it is not a coincidence that the further removed, the more people deny God, his role in their life, the more lonely, the more purposeless, the more isolated our lives feel. That's not accidental. That's exactly uh, what you would expect. But David, before we get into the Thanksgiving dinner rules, one other question on this. Why is it that you think when we look around 
historically, and these, these things are just undeniably true, we have a higher quality of life than anybody who has ever lived before us. Our, the poor people in our world would cons- be considered uh, wealthy a uh, hundred years ago even. Uh, people have never had it better than we have it now, but it appears that people might also have never been angrier, never been less satisfied than we are now. Why do you think that is? Well, I think one, uh, you know, if we could ask George the question, I think he would obviously immediately point to worldview, and I think that that is at the root cause. I think other factors, uh, Joseph, would be that we are a more hurried and busy culture than we've ever been before. Uh, we, we run from one meeting to the other. We're, we're, we don't even have time to even think about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, but ultimately, I do think it comes down to worldview. Six uh, percent of Americans have a biblical worldview. Uh, less than four percent of the younger millennial Gen Z generation has a biblical worldview. So again, when you don't have that purpose, you don't have a reason to get up in the morning. Uh, you're going to be discouraged. You're going to be frustrated. And I think that is borne out with the general discontent we see around us. The comedian Jim Carrey once observed that he wished everyone could be rich and famous, so then they would see that it doesn't make you happy. And I think it's, it's a reflection of the fact that we have placed our hope and our expectations in the wrong things, and, and the, more, the closer we get to those things that should make us happy, uh, the more we realize that they do not, uh, which is why we need to be grateful for whatever our situation is now, because ultimately our gratitude is in Christ, in the things that he has given us, the unmerited grace that each of us are the beneficiaries of. But now let's get into the, the rest of this, David. People are nervous. Um, That's just the reality of the holidays for a lot of people. They're going to get together with people that they've had conflicts with that they haven't seen for years, especially this year. COVID gave people a break uh, from their family for better or worse. Um, There's a lot of anxiety. How should people mentally, emotionally, spiritually be preparing themselves to have these conversations? Yeah, I think so specifically as Christians going into these uh, these Thanksgiving meals with friends and close family that you might not have seen for two years at this point, I think one of the things to go into it uh, is realizing that this is an opportunity. Um, you know, golly, I was reading a couple verses before we came on the show, Joseph, and how many meals you find in the Bible. Uh, Jesus is constantly gathering his disciples. He's gathering tax collectors. He's gathering uh, groups of people to, to, share, to share a meal with, to break bread. And he uses these meals as opportunities to teach deep spiritual truths. And like one thing as Christians going into these meals, we're sure there's going to be people who disagree with us on these fundamental issues of religion and of politics. See this as an opportunity, first and foremost, to love other people. Uh, as, as Christians, uh, think about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Uh, Jesus commanded us to, to be salt and light, to be a special fragrance. And I think just the first thing we should do going into these conversations is get excited. This is an opportunity, uh, this one day out of the year, or we can be a gospel witness uh, to people that might not uh, have these uh, sit-down, long conversations with another Christian uh, for the rest of the year. So, one, we should look at these as incredible opportunities. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And in addition to that, the frame of mind that we go in with this Uh, Though holiday dinners are sometimes contentious, we should not go in with a battle plan as much as a a plan to just love and serve people. Um, And if if we are looking for a fight, it's possible that we're going to get a fight, Um, but we should be... um, 
peacemakers. We should be uh, reconcilers, uh, not only with people to each other, but most importantly, the ministry of second reconciliation is reconciling people to God. And, and I would say that mentally, the, the way that we think about the people that we are going to um, be dealing with, uh, whoever that is in our mind, whether it's our in-law or our estranged child or that cousin that we don't like or the crazy uncle, whoever it is, we have to discipline our minds immediately to think about them in the way Jesus does. They might have done things to us that are legitimately wrong, that we have serious, real grievances about. Uh, but how does God see that person? And in my opinion, um, that helps us emotionally uh, de-escalate the situation if we train ourselves, if we discipline ourselves to think about other people the way that Jesus does. It can be hard, um, but there is a truth there. And the more we meditate on the truth, that can help these situations. Yeah, let me give you two brief theological uh, points, Joseph. One, uh, we know that as Christians, every single person is made in God's image. Everyone has inherent value and dignity. I think it's easy to say that when we're talking about the unnamed masses, but maybe it's a little bit more difficult to internalize that when you're talking about your close family members. Yeah. Uh, but another way to think about relating to lost uh, family members is that if that person repents of their sin and turns in faith to Christ, uh, they're going to be a co-heir with us for eternity. We're going to spend eternity with these people. And so I think we should, again, take every gospel opportunity uh, that God graciously gives us uh, to be light and salt uh, to those people who, at the end of the day, are some of the closest people to us, at least when it uh, comes to bloodlines. That's good. Now, now we're in a scenario where somebody's picking a fight with us, David. Um, they're asking the questions. They're um, you know, they're just going at you. And we know that there are people who do this at holidays sometimes. How should we re be responding to somebody who really does want to fight? I think we should look for ways to diffuse the situation. I think there's ways to, to, to acknowledge, you know, brother or sister, I appreciate uh, your opinion. I appreciate your perspective. I might think, uh, see things a little bit different. Uh, but at least we can agree on X, Y, or Z. I think even if someone's picking a fight on some political issue or religious issue, um, try to go back to something that unites us. As Christians, we can always tell that uh, person trying to fight with us, hey, at the end of the day, you and I can both agree that we should uh, be promoting love and kindness and fairness. That's good. And in addition to that, I think that sometimes... Uh, the best way to diffuse antagonism is to simply ask questions. And I encourage people to put in their toolbox something like, tell me why you feel that way. Tell me more about that. Uh, because oftentimes people will say something uh, for the purpose of getting a reaction. And, uh, and, and instinctively, we may want to give them a reaction. But if we're trying to de-escalate rather than escalate the situation and also ultimately be uh, more persuasive, if we ask that question, well, that's very interesting. Tell me how you came to that conclusion. That can be helpful. So I agree, Joseph. I think that can be very helpful. Um, I've been going through the book of Proverbs in my uh, Bible reading plan, and there are so many verses uh, that Solomon is writing to his son about the significance of yeah. uh, being wise, asking good questions, and being silent, being quick to listen, slow to speak. So, uh, you know, having that check in our spirit before we lash out uh, and just ask good questions, listen, and then speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4. I think that could be something that guides us in all of these conversations. And, and I'll read a couple other of these for you. Uh, Proverbs 16, 21, the wise in heart will be called understanding 
and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. In order to be understanding people, we have to listen. Uh, Also, James chapter 1 has a lot to say about this. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Um, David, leave us with one more thing for Thanksgiving. What, What should people be remembering as they go into dinner? I think one thing as we go into dinner, uh, just pause. It, it's been a it's a, been a tough year, Joseph, uh, but all of us uh, have something to be grateful for. Uh, God's common grace uh, has shown up in many ways uh, over the last year. If we just pause and think about it, and those of us who follow the Lord, His special grace is the gift of His Son, the gift of His Word. That's something we can all be very grateful for. That's exactly right, and it is Thanksgiving. Let's keep the. Big E on the I chart. Let's remember what that is. These are times for gratitude, times to express our gratefulness, and we need to do that with our attitude and the way we treat people because one of the foundational truths of the gospel is that we express our gratitude to God to Jesus uh, by in the in the way that we treat other people. David Clausen, really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Enjoy your time with your friends and family as well. Thank you, Joseph. Happy Thanksgiving. Well, friends, that's what we've got for the program today. I want to remind you about Proverbs 15.1 as well. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh answer stirs up anger. We have a lot of control over the way not only our relationships with our relatives over Thanksgiving is going to be, but also our relationships and our conversations with our children, which we talked a lot about today as well. Be soft, turn away wrath, walk in the fruit of the Spirit, and we will see much better results. Friends, have a great Thanksgiving. We look forward to seeing you next time here on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.